And I was trying to think of a, a dramatic story that uh, spoke of a return uh, and to, to kind of bring out, I searched my electronic books with the word keyword return uh, and then it just ended up, I, I had to go to a paperback and I, I found, I think the appropriate story, you probably know it, it goes something like this. There was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of uh, my inheritance. And uh, the father, he gave him his share of an inheritance, and not many days after that, he, he ran off to a, a different place, and he spent that inheritance in reckless living. He found himself destitute, and so he employed himself in the service uh, of someone else, and he was feeding these pigs in a field, and he, he came to his senses, and he realized, you know, I, I'm really hungry, I'd like to eat even what these, these pigs are eating, but I could even do better if I went back to my father, just... Uh, served him as an employee. Uh, I'll, I'll come back and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and uh, I, I just want to be uh, one of your servants. I'm not even worth being one of your, your children. And so he, he sets off on his journey, and when he's uh, a long way off, uh, he, his father sees him, his father runs and embraces him. And of course, he gives this speech that he's rehearsed to his father. He says, I'm not worthy to, to be one of your children. I've sinned against heaven and against you. And uh, I, I just want to be one of your servants. And the father, of course, says, uh, let, let's bring the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. My son, who was lost, has returned home. I wonder... If you think a, a, a little bit, as you, you think about your own life before God, and you, you think about when you've departed from Him, how, how do you think about God? Does he, does he want you back? I think there's a part of us who thinks that I'm not, I'm not fit even to be considered one of His children. And yet, in that story that Jesus tells, right, the parable of the prodigal son, how does He picture the Father? Not angrily, not angrily receiving his son, but eagerly receiving his son. Joyfully going out to love him, embrace him, shower his mercy upon him, to kiss him, to receive him home. And that, that is how our God receives us. So we, we come to God when we repent and return from our sin we come to a God who is willing and eager and ready and desirous of receiving us home as his children. The, the prophet Hosea wants us, wants the people of Israel to return to the Lord. You can see it right there from the opening words of chapter 6, verse 1. Do you see them there or in your Bibles? Hosea says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. This invitation to come to the Lord, as I said, it's the burden of Hosea chapters 6 and 7. So, so go ahead and just skip down to the end of Hosea chapter 7. God is beckoning his people to come to him truly, sincerely, and genuinely return. If you take a look at chapter 7, verse 16, what do you see there? This is about the people of Israel. They returned, but not upward. That means that they didn't return genuinely to God. They returned half-heartedly. We get a sense from this from the remainder of the verse. So they returned, but not upward. 
They are like a treacherous bow. That's a weapon that doesn't work as it should. It's not reliable. They return like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. And this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So it begins with a call to return to the Lord. But in the end, what would you see? The people of Israel did, did not return faithfully to the Lord. They didn't return genuinely and truly. And the burden of Hosea chapter 6 and 7 is that we would come to God with true hearts. That we would know Him and love Him and serve Him. Israel does not return to the Lord like that. Their return is fake. It's fickle. It's false. And as we unpack these two chapters today, this is what we need to come to recognize. Through this text, the the maker of heaven and earth is calling us to come to Him. To come to Him to be healed by Him. To be revived by Him. To be raised up by Him. To live before Him. That's the message of this ancient text. And it applies to us today. Because like Israel, we've all rebelled against God. We've all been like that prodigal son who's despised our father and turned away and run away. And we all need to return to the Lord who made us to have communion with Him. Some of us feel this more acutely today than others. Some of us know that there has been too much distance between our souls and the Savior. Some of us have been wandering and drifting, and we know we need to return. Others of us may be blind to the widening gap between ourselves and God. Sin is always a departure from God. So whether or or not you're a, a believer, whether you've deliberately drifted or not, at some level, we all need to return to the Lord. We all need to press on to know the Lord and love the Lord. And this is what we think about from chapters 6 and 7. As you recall from our studies of Hosea, he's a prophet in the 8th century, just before the collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. He's been called to marry a woman named Gomer. As it turns out, she will be unfaithful to him. And he is called to exemplify and explain God's love and God's judgment upon the people of Israel. Hosea was called to picture God's love for his people by pursuing Gomer, purchasing her back and redeeming her after she had gone astray. Now, for the most part, we've left behind that picture that Hosea gives in Hosea chapters 1 to 3. We've left behind Hosea and Gomer's marriage. And in the remaining chapters, really chapters 4 to 14, what we're looking at is probably a compilation of Hosea's prophetic ministry among the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in these chapters, Hosea, he stands as a covenant advocate. He's prosecuting God's lawsuit against the people of Israel for how they've transgressed his laws and broken his commands. And he's calling them to come back to the Lord, to repent. And in the narrative of the Bible, the book of Hosea teaches us that God is patiently and lovingly pursuing a wayward people. God will ultimately purchase and redeem his people by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Hosea helps to build the tension of the Bible's grand narrative as we're waiting for the Messiah to come. Hosea helps us to see our own need for Jesus in the mirror of Israel's sins. So we're going to take a look at these two chapters under four headings. Hosea's call, God's desire, Israel's sin, and our response. Those four points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with Hosea's call, which we find 
in the first three verses of chapter 6. But as we consider these verses of chapter 6, we need to back up just one verse into chapter 5. We need to remember the closing of chapter 5. According to Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, God purposed to withdraw from Israel so that they might come to their senses, acknowledge their guilt, and seek God's face. God would send the calamity of the exile upon His people so that they might earnestly seek Him. And the prophet Hosea knows this, and it's as if he says, then what are we waiting for? Let us go to Him. And so that's why he beckons the people of Israel to return to the Lord. Read Hosea's call, his petition there in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rain that waters the earth. Much of Hosea's plea here is, is perspective. It, it looks forward to the time of Israel's exile where God disciplines his wayward people. But he does it to drive them to himself. He tears so that he might heal. He strikes down a prideful people so that he might bind them up and bring them into his presence. He sends them into exile so that they might earnestly seek his face. And Israel may very well be unaware of just how desperate their situation is. Verse 2 tells us that they need reviving and raising up. Do you see that? In other words, they need a resurrection. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And they need to be made alive. This is not a work that they can do. After all, dead people can't make themselves alive again. This is a work that God must do. It's only something God can do. And you see Hosea's language, he will do it. He says, God will revive us. God will raise us up. And Hosea tells us why. That we may live before Him. Is there, is there any greater joy, privilege, and blessing in all of the universe but to live in the presence of God, knowing Him and enjoying Him to the full? This is the good news according to Hosea. And this certainly looks forward to Jesus Christ. After all, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. God's people are truly raised up from their spiritual graves in union with Christ when He was raised up from His grave on the third day. And throughout the whole course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus repeatedly told His disciples that He would be raised on the third day. The way in which God revives and raises up His people to live before Him is through His Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. What then is their business? What should be their business? If this is what God will do, then what should they be chiefly concerned about? Hosea tells us in these words, know the Lord. He, he urges Israel not merely to have a, a head knowledge of the Lord, but a heart knowledge. It's not enough to know about God, but you must know Him personally. And consider who Israel is to return and know. Yahweh. So those capital letters, L-O-R-D there. Yahweh, God's covenant name. This is not an unknown God. This is a God who has made Himself known. He made Himself known in the creation. He made Himself known in His promise to Adam after the fall. That He would send a seed, a Savior, a Messiah. 
He's the God who promised Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And every word that God has ever said will come true because he's faithful. He's the God who rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He made himself known in those plagues. He's the God who led them and fed them in the wilderness. He's the God who gave them victory in the conquest and gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. Hosea is calling Israel to know and love the God who's made himself known to them, who's been good and gracious to his people. The God who has promised redemption and rescue from sin will surely do it. This is not merely a call to come back to worship. It's a call to come back to God himself. And they should pursue the Lord with all that they are and all that they have. What is more, Hosea assures the people of Israel that if they seek God, he will be found. As sure as the sun is faithful to rise, God will be found faithful to his promises. He will even bring refreshing showers to revive. So return to him. Press on to know him. That's Hosea's call. It's the plea that we really all need to respond to. We should turn and consider our our second point, God's desire. As we do, take a look at verses 4 to 6 of Hosea chapter 6. God says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In these verses we see God's desire. But in verse 4 we also see the Lord's consternation and dismay. These are the Lord's words. You see that right? He's, He's speaking, what shall I do? I have hewn them, I have slain them, my judgment goes forth, I desire, and they dealt faithlessly with me. This is the Lord speaking here. He's expressing his consternation and dismay. You see it in these questions, right? What's he, what's he going to do with his people, with Ephraim and Judah? He's speaking to his whole people here. What am I going to do with you? Well, he knows what he's actually going to do with them. He's told them he's going to send them into exile. But these questions, they, they express the Lord's bewilderment. He He's moved and dismayed. But that does not mean his purposes have changed. Many of us have, have been greeted with this kind of uh, consternation and dismay. Maybe it was only my experience growing up. But you, maybe you've been greeted with this. My mother would walk into my room and she'd, she'd look around in horror and she would say, Michael, 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 what, what am I going to do with you? Well, she knew what she was going to do with me. She's going to make me clean my room. And nevertheless, right, she's... She's distressed by what she saw, and rightly so. So I should clean my room, and so should many of you. (sighs) So this is what the Lord's facing here, a people that are bewildering to a certain extent, and yet he has his purposes. He's facing a people whose love is transient and passing. You see how it's described? It's like a morning cloud that's just, it's driven away. As soon as the wind comes, it's like dew that evaporates when the sun comes up. It doesn't stay. It's not a love that stays. It's a love that slips away. And so what what he's pleading for is a real and lasting love. It's why he's sent his prophets to convict his people. He's hewn them. That's to to cut them like with an an axe. He, he, He slays them. He wants to bring them to judicial execution, so to speak. He sent his prophets to bring... The darkness of his people's heart into the light. 
God has done this. He tells us why there in verse 6. This is what he really wanted from his people. What he really wants from us. It's not a love that slips away, but a love that stays. A love that's steadfast. A, a loyal love. A chesed love. Israel could turn up and offer all the sacrifices that they wanted. But if they weren't offered in steadfast love and in utter dependence upon God, then they were empty symbols and worthless. It's, it's not true in an absolute sense that God doesn't want sacrifices. After all, He like wrote them into His law, right? He, he ordered that they be given. But we, we must remember that God gave Israel the, the sacrificial system as a means to express their hearts toward Him. They were a means to express their sorrow over their sin, how they offended God. Their, their greatness and their gratitude for the forgiveness that God promises. That's what these sacrifices were for. They're, they're not to buy God off. I'm not just going to bring it, I sinned, okay, i got to pull out my wallet and bring my lamb. There, we're all done. No, it's a, a means of expressing their heart for the Lord. This is what God wants from His people. A steadfast love, a loyal love, a love that realizes when I've sinned against God, harmed His character and His name, that I'm grieved by that, and I seek His forgiveness. But this is what God wants from His people, hearts of gratitude for His mercy. Is this not staggering, that the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth wants your heart? He wants your heart. He made every, as one children's song says, He made every shining star above and He calls them each by name. He formed the mighty mountains and the sea. But the greatest gift that He's given us is in sending Jesus Christ and making Him a substitute for our sin. He has done this and He wants to win your heart. He wants your steadfast love in response to what He's done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He goes to extraordinary lengths to tell you. He sent prophets to Israel to say, I want your heart. He sends messengers to you to say, I want your heart. Love and knowledge, you see here, they're held in in parallel in the two halves of verse 6. Same with sacrifice and offerings. Again, the main idea that the Lord is expressing here is that He wants a real relationship with His people and not rote rituals. The Lord wants real knowledge from His people. And remember how verse 2, I said, was truly fulfilled In the Lord Jesus. Well, verse 6 is part of the reason that this must be the case, I think. In his public ministry, the Lord Jesus, he picked up Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. He he used it on a number of occasions in his conversations with the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And he uses it to effectively say, you don't really have a true knowledge of God. Our brother Dan Dibzins, he's going to help us think about this. One of those occasions in Jesus' ministry tonight. But here's the point. By the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, Israel had been returned to the land. But it's as if the people are still spiritually dead. It's as if they're still in a spiritual exile and need to be revived and raised up and brought to live in God's presence. Jesus effectively says in Matthew chapter 12 verse 7, you don't know what Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 means. Which means that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day don't really know God. This is what God wants from each one of us, to know Him and to love Him. Let's turn and consider our third point, Israel's sin. It's Israel's sin that shows us kind of the inverse of what it looks like to know God. So do you want to know what a counterfeit knowledge of God looks like? It looks like this. It looks like what we see in Israel. 
Having heard what God wants, he wants a, a loyal love and true knowledge. Let's turn and consider what God gets. He gets treachery. Let's begin by reading Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 to chapter 7, verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face by their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the, priest, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with, his, with hearts like an oven, they approached their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 is something of a summary statement for everything that's going to follow until the end of chapter 7. God wanted loyal love, true knowledge from his people, but instead of loyal love, God got transgression and treachery from Israel. That's what they gave him, so to speak, in the promised land. And that's what Adam gave God in the garden. You'll remember that God set Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them all that they could have ever needed and all that they should have ever wanted. God made them happy and holy. He gave a command and a covenant to keep. But sadly, he sinned against God. Adam sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. He transgressed the covenant. God did the same Israel did the same as well. He, he made them, God made Israel, a mighty people through Abraham and his descendants. He brought her, Israel, out of the womb of Egypt, breaking the waters of the Red Sea. God planted them in a garden-like land. God gave them commands and a covenant to keep. But Israel sadly followed in the footsteps of Adam. They too sinned against God. They transgressed the covenant. They broke God's commands. And as we read... Through those, as we read through those verses a, a moment ago, you may have noticed some repetition. The prophets are, often do this. They will repeat themes and ideas over and over again so that hearers don't miss the point. Evil was mentioned multiple times. You see chapter 6, verse 8, Gilead is a city of evildoers. Then chapter 7 opens with three mentions of evil in rapid succession. Hosea 7.1, the evil deeds of Samaria. Hosea 7.2, I remember all their evil. Hosea 7.3, by their evil, they make the king glad. These are people who are evil and do evil. And this is startling because they're to be God's people. They're supposed to do good and not evil. And what kind of evil do they do? Well, for one, they rob and steal. You see Hosea chapter 6, verse 9, as robbers lie in wait for a man... This is predatory theft. At the end of verse 1 in chapter 7, we read, The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. 
They rob and they steal. They also murder. We're told in Hosea chapter 6, verse 8, that Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. But then in verse 9, the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. Shechem was sometimes actually a place of, of worship. So here you have the religious leaders murdering people on their way to church, so to speak. Imagine if pastors were banding together to do that today. What kind of society are we looking at here? The leaders of the nation are murderers. They steal, they murder, they also commit adultery. Look at the end of Hosea chapter 6, verse 10. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Skip down to chapter 7, verse 4. They're all adulterers. We've noted before that Hosea has identified Israel's idolatry as a kind of spiritual adultery against God. But here, here's the thing. When Israel joins in with the idolatrous worship of the nations, that their shrines and their places of worship, they also not only commit spiritual adultery, but they also commit physical adultery. The worship of the surrounding nations involves sexual morality at their worship shrines and sites. So we've got thieves, murderers, and adulterers. They commit villainy and treachery. This emerges in their political upheaval and intrigue. Actually, verses 3 to 7 of chapter 7 are actually recounting some of this political intrigue that's occurred in the life of the people of Israel. There's been backstabbing and assassinations that took place toward the end of Hosea's ministry. At one point, there were four kings who were assassinated in rapid succession. There are at least, there are at least two things that Hosea wants to make sure that we understand about all of this evil that he has mentioned. Number one, the Lord sees it all. And number two, Israel's heart is far from God. Look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 10. He says, In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. See, the Lord always sees all of our sin. In the middle of, chap uh, of Hosea chapter 7, verse 1, we find this. The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. And then in Hosea chapter 7, verse 2, we read, But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. See, the Lord sees all of Israel's sin. He sees all of our sin. But perhaps you protest. Remember, Mike, I'm not, I'm not guilty of theft or murder or adultery. Well, sadly, too many of us are. All of us are. Too many of us have stolen time from our employers. Perhaps we have frittered away time on Facebook. Uh, perhaps we've tracked the news on Twitter during our workday or abandoned our work for reviews on Amazon. Have we stolen from our employers? But murder? I, I haven't murdered. Jesus might beg to differ with us, right? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount says that if we're angry with our brothers in our hearts, we're guilty of murder. What about adultery? Jesus too in Matthew chapter 5 in his famous Sermon on the Mount says that if you've looked on someone who's not your spouse with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The all-seeing God saw all of Israel's sins and he sees all of our sins too. Even the sins that we think are, are hidden from sight, just hidden in our hearts. The scriptures tell us that the Lord looks upon the heart. Hosea tells us, I, I remember all their evil. Their deeds surround them. They're before my face. The Lord sees all of our sin. Hosea 
is also sure to point out that Israel's heart is far from the Lord. They don't even call upon them when they're in need. So at the end of Hosea chapter 7, verse 7 communicates when it says, All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. None of Israel's rulers call upon the Lord for help. But do you know who they do call upon? They call upon the surrounding nations. That's Hosea's point in verses 8 to 11. Read verses 8 to 11 of chapter 7. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. Calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Hosea, he uses these word pictures, these analogies, these metaphors to expose the fact that Israel has turned away from the Lord. Turned to the Gentiles to to seek them for strength, to call upon other nations for aid. Through these metaphors, Hosea even exposes the foolishness of sin. The blindness that sin brings and really the patience of God. Ephraim, again, they're a, a single tribe. It's part of the northern kingdom. They're a single tribe. Really, they're standing as a part for the whole. They are called a cake not turned. Uh, this morning, one of my sons made some, some biscuits, right? We call them wop doughs because you, you buy the little packaging. You open it up and it goes pop, wops open. Uh, and we uh, don't buy the name brand, only second best for our family. Um, so you put them in the oven. They're not name brand. They're not great. So if you cook them to the allotted time, they won't fully cook. You actually have to turn them over. Otherwise, they'll, they'll literally just be half-baked. So that's what we're looking at here. They're, they're a cake not turned. They're, they're half-baked. They're, they're a few bricks shy of a full load. And then in, in verse 7, we're told that Ephraim, they're, they're like a dove, silly and without sense. They're flying back and forth between different nations looking for help. They're like that squirrel that's in the middle of the street. It can't decide which way to go. So it's literally just running back and forth, basically stuck in the same spot. Israel, they, they flitter back and forth. And consider the the foolishness of seeking saviors who cannot actually save or satisfy. Hosea has told us this before. They they cannot heal you. Consider the foolishness of seeking saviors who cannot save. Israel was going to the nation for pleasure and protection. Let's just meditate on, on both for a moment. Seeking pleasures and seeking protection in others. We We really cannot serve the priorities and pleasures of the the, the D.C. area and culture and the divine. We can't serve both and hope to survive. We'll be flattened like that indecisive squirrel. The the push, for example, the push for, for youth sports and extracurriculars and training in the fields of math and science and art, the demanding hours of the office, that push of our community combined with a pull of deep devotion to God's word, fellowship with God's people, friendship among brothers and sisters in Christ, service in Christ's church, meaningfully discipling our children, cultivating our marriages, all which take a vast amount of time. The push and pull of that is unsustainable. The, the temporary cannot be held in balance with the eternal. Rather, the eternal must rule over the temporary. And the answer is not actually better time management. You probably don't need better time management. What we all probably need 
is to have discernment like Mary, to sit at the feet of Jesus and choose the good portion which can never be taken away. A a willingness to show the world that we're not going to run back and forth between all of the things that our communities want from us, but to give ourselves to the things that God wants from us. Let's give the world and not God our leftovers. You, you want to pursue youth sports, extracurriculars, hobbies, and the like, and, and other things? That, that's fine. But make sure that they're the leftovers after God has been given his due, including the first day of the week. Israel, they were going to the nations for pleasure, and we must not do the same. But Israel was also going to the world for protection. That's why Egypt and Assyria get a mention with political turmoil and wars going on in the region. Israel went back and forth to different nations, hoping against hope that one of them could save them. They would promise their riches and their wealth if they would just protect them. How do we do that today? Might we be tempted to seek after politicians and judges and popularity of our peers? We might be tempted to seek after prosperity for protection, thinking if I can just save enough, then when the economy tanks, it'll still be okay. I'll be able to make it through. The Lord can take all of it away. Remember, Job, we cannot trust in the horses and the chariots or the storehouses of this world. It's foolish to do so. But notice, too, that Hosea informs Israel that sin is sneaky and blinding. In verse 9, you see there of chapter 7, not only did Israel seek others for strength, but but those they sought really ate them alive. And they didn't even know it. Verse 9, strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Sneaks up on him, surprises him. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Israel sought foreign nations for protection, and those nations left Israel weaker than when they first went. When we are so committed to our sin and rebellion, so committed to seeking after anything and anyone other than the Lord, we're going to end up weaker in the end. Sin is a blinding effect. Prohibiting us from seeing what's actually taking place happening. Israel went after other lovers and protectors. They foolishly flitted about like a silly bird, like that dove. Their strength was waning. And as the strength of the old leaks away. If that were not enough, the Lord promises to flatten Israel like a squirrel in the street. Destruction will come. For that's what sin deserves. And that's what Hosea says in chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. Read those verses. Chapter 7, verse 12. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Yahweh, he, he spread his net over them. He brings them down. He disciplines them, verse 12. Destruction will come to them, verse 13. The exile and end of the northern kingdom is certain. Even as the prophet makes this known 
he makes something else known too. All of Israel's sin is against the Lord. Did you notice that as we were reading? So often we forget that our sin is a personal offense against the living God. Look what the Lord says in verse 13. The Lord says that Israel strayed from me. They've rebelled against me. They speak lies against me. The end of verse 14, you see there, they rebel against me. Now the end of verse 15, they devise evil against me. Sin is adversarial to the sovereign God. You and I have sinned, and our sin is first and foremost against the sovereign God. And amazingly, we're told in verse 14 that they don't want the Lord, they want wine. They don't want God, they want grain. And they're going to gash themselves out of anguish that they don't have those things. They're distraught, but they should be distraught over how they've destroyed their relationship with God. In the words of verse 14, they do not cry to the Lord from the heart. Even as we saw at the start, their return is half-hearted. They return, verse 16, but not upward, not to God. Just step back and consider how the people of Israel are described in these two chapters. Their love is fickle. How often is ours? They offer empty sacrifices. How often have we performed empty religious duties? Will the Lord's Supper that we'll partake of toward the end of the service, will will that be an empty religious duty for us, a, a rote ritual? Or will our hearts be filled with gratitude for what the Lord Jesus has done for us? Israel, they they transgress the covenant. They break God's commands. How often have we done the same? They've done evil. We have too. They've murdered. And we've done the same in our hearts. They've stolen, committed adultery, misused alcohol, sought protection and pleasure from people in places other than God, and so much more. And too often our hearts have been inclined to do the same. Now remember this. These are the people that the Lord wants to come to him. These are the people that the Lord wants to come to him, to receive love from, and to be known by. And we are just like them. And he wants us to come to him, to return to him, to know him, and to love him. And all of this is only made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us. I'm reminded of the words of that old and wonderful hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned and unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Friends, this is where knowing God And returning to God begins. It begins with knowing who He is and what He has done. It begins with knowing who we are and what we have done. And this is what I want us to consider in our fourth and final point. Our response. What is our response to these two chapters from Hosea? Consider the words of Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 to 3 again. Begin there at the beginning. Come. Don't wait any longer. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. Has he convicted us of our sin? Then go to him for healing. 
He has struck us down. He's brought us low. That he may bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up. That we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. As the spring rains that water the earth. So here's the call of Hosea 6 and 7. Let us return to the Lord. Let us know the Lord. Let us love the Lord. To trust the Lord. What do these things look like in our lives? Returning to the Lord means actually turning away from our sin. The the idea in the Hebrew is there's got to be an amendment of life. a, A change. So if we're walking one way in one direction towards sin. We need to turn around and begin moving the other direction. To the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the only one who can right our wrong. Isn't that amazing? We go to the only one who can right our wrong. He can bind us up. He can revive us. He can raise us up. And he can receive us into his presence. How? How can God be so full of salvation when we are so full of sin? Well, the Lord Jesus is the answer. He can do all of this because he came in the flesh. The eternal God became man by taking flesh to himself. The God-man, Christ Jesus, lived the life that Adam did not live. He lived the life that Israel did not live. He lived the life that we have not lived. Where Adam and Israel transgressed the covenant, the Lord Jesus kept the covenant. In fact, he kept all of God's commands. He did not murder, not even in his heart. He did not commit adultery, not even in his heart. He did not go flitting about and trusting the Pharisees or in Pilate or in the power of the sword for his freedom or safety. Instead, he trusted his heavenly Father all the way to the cross. Even on the cross, in his darkest hour, he proclaimed his trust in the Father by crying from his heart, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, Jesus, he lived a perfect life. And he offered that perfect life as a substitute on behalf of sinners, standing in our place and bearing God the Father's wrath against our sin. And still, three days after his death on the cross, God raised him up from the dead so that he might be vindicated and we might be forgiven. So to return to the Lord means to turn away from your sin. To turn away from our pride and our deceit, our love of the world, our lust of the flesh, the praise of men, the bitterness against God or others in our lives. It means turning from despising others for disagreeing with you. It means turning from self-righteousness and turning from hypocrisy, slander, and greed. Turning from sloth and turning from gluttony. Turn from selfishness and arrogance. To return to the Lord means that we turn away from these things and turn toward Him. We turn from trusting in ourselves and in our deeds to trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Turn from your sin and trust in the one who was raised up from the dead on the third day. Hosea, he tells us not merely to return to the Lord, but to know the Lord. He tells us more. It's a fascinating phrase. He tells us to press on to know the Lord. And there's an eagerness kind of implied in that phrase. Here, remember, we're considering not merely rote rituals, but a real relationship. Israel had rituals, but they were meant to be means of knowing God. So how do we know God? How do we press on to know Him? How do you know anyone? Well, they tell you about themselves, and you listen, and you learn from them. And where has God told us about Himself? In His Word, in the Bible. He has spoken to us. He's revealed Himself to us. And we must listen to him. We need to give attention to the reading of God's word. 
The only way you get to know someone is by spending time with them. But knowledge of God is also shown in how we respond to his voice. Right? If we read, hear, and understand God's voice in the scriptures, then we will be confronted with commands and expectations that God has upon us. So do we obey those commands? Are we hearers and doers of the word of God? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Another way we might discern whether we know the Lord is whether we tell others what he's like. Set yourself in an office environment for a moment. Imagine you've been there for a decade and a new person comes into the office. They've just been hired and they say to you, tell me what the boss is like. If you say, well, he comes in at nine and leaves in at five and that's all you say, it's clear that you don't know the boss. But if you were to say, well, he's been married for about 15 years. Uh, he's got four kids. Like, if you want to get caught in a conversation with him, just ask him about his kids. He won't stop talking about them. His youngest plays baseball, loves to slide and steal second base. Uh, he, he does all these kinds of things. He, he, um, he also has these office birthday parties, right, where he will take uh, the person whose birthday is actually out for lunch before he has the party. Uh, and he, he likes to ask them questions about their life. You know, one time he, he came to my kid's baseball game uh, and we sat and talked for a couple of hours about uh, politics and uh, about his own faith in God and on and on, right? You're showing then that you actually know something because you've interacted with him. You've walked with him. You've been places with him. You've learned about him. So when, when somebody asks you about the Lord, do you say, you know, Jesus, he uh, died on the cross and uh, was raised from the grave? Well, maybe you say that, but, but do you say more? Do you also talk about the impact that the Lord Jesus has had in your, your life? Do you reveal that he's not just a person out there, but a person that you have had experiential knowledge of and known for the course of your life? And it clearly takes work to know the Lord, doesn't it? All real relationships take work. Hosea tells them to press on. And we... We have to keep pressing on to know the Lord. We, we so love comfort and convenience and ease that we often give up on hard things, difficult things, even the divine things. We like to buy things rather than build things. But you can't buy knowledge of God. That knowledge has to be built through sincere and sustained inquiry into God's word and conversation with him in prayer. And pressing on to know the Lord is worth everything. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said? Remember what his desire was? In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said that you could take away every earthly gift I have. I'm willing to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Knowing God is worth every penny and pound that you have to your name. And, and who else is going to love you like God loves you? Right? Who else is going to put up with all of your sinfulness and silliness and then call you back to himself? Dear Christian, there is, there's no secret to the Christian life. You've got to press on to know the Lord and to keep knowing the Lord. Another way in which our knowledge of God is revealed is if we cry out to him in moments of distress or we just talk to him throughout the day. What's our, our gut reaction when we're greeted with difficulty? In Hosea chapter 7, verse 7, and in 7, verse 14, we're told that neither the kings of Israel nor the people cried out to the Lord from the heart. If you know the kindness and love of God, that He is ready and eager to hear the cries of His children, then cry out to Him. 
Share with him what is on your heart. Cry out to the God who has called out to you and said, come home to me. As we, as we conclude, consider that the very thing that the Lord wants from us is what he's actually shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord told us that he wanted steadfast, loyal love. And this is what he has shown to us. Do you, do you remember the, the parable of the prodigal son that we began with there at the beginning? That Jesus told us in that parable that the father, he's not angrily waiting. He's not angrily waiting for his son to return home. Rather, he's eagerly waiting for his son to return home. He's watching even. All of this, again, is a picture of God the Father's loving posture toward us in waiting for us to come to our senses and to come home to Him. Return to the Lord. If you seek Him, you will find Him. If you're lost, you will be found. If you're dead, you'll be made alive in Jesus Christ. He wants your love. He wants your heart. He wants you.